Well, we are back for today's edition of Book Nook from the Quincy Public Library. I'm talking to Katie Kroshauer. Hello there. Hello. We got some really cool stuff today, and we are going to talk about the Easter Bunny. Well, yes, we'll just start at the top. So this is a children's book, obviously, but um, it is so much fun, so high energy. You know, frequently when you think of Easter Bunny, it's more like, oh, here comes you know, Peter Cottontail. Hopping down hop. the bunny trail. No, this is like the superstar superhero of Easter bunnies. The book is called How to Catch the Easter Bunny from New York Times bestselling author and illustrator Adam Wallace and Andy Elkerton. And it, first of all, the colors are amazing. It's just so bright and fun and, you know, there's action in this book. Um, narrated by the Easter Bunny, of course, he introduces himself, and then he talks about all of the ways that people have tried to catch him over the years. You know, starting with your classic box on a stick, um, moving through, you know, like the rug over the hole in the ground. Um, there's a hip-hop dance floor that the bunny has to, you know, navigate, dance, dance, revolution or whatever decoys set out for our little bunny but you know he's just a whole lot smarter than that and he can escape from any of these situations so you know lots of movement and action I just love it I think it's such a fun way to introduce kids to the Easter bunny to that idea of going out and looking for Easter eggs or you know going on that hunt um the morning of Easter um he just it's so much fun I don't know who comes up with these things but when you've got a fun narrator that just has that smirk of knowledge and he's kind of that superhero idea of I'm gonna get past all of these traps Great way to introduce the kids to kind of that creative thinking, building a Rube Goldberg machine. How are you going to trap the Easter bunny? Um, what's your favorite thing about this holiday? Uh, really fun book. Just a great idea coming up for that holiday. So I I can't wait. And I was going to bring this in later, closer to when the actual holiday is, but it's going to be off the shelf as soon as I bring it in oh, to yeah. the library today. So, yeah. well, you know. I mean, again, we're, and we're only like, a little bit like four weeks out, right. so it's, right. it's close. It's very it's very uh, relevant to talk about that. Always too. fun to jump ahead and talk about things Something like that. else relevant, of course, we're in the middle of basketball season, and uh, you've got a book, a children's book, about one of the legends of the NBA. Yes, this is a fairly new book. We got it in 2021. It's called Above the Rim, How Elgin Baylor Changed Basketball. And this is by Jen Bryant and illustrated by Frank Morrison. Both of them are award-winning um, in their field. And, of course, Elgin Baylor did just recently pass away, almost exactly About a, year a year ago. a year ago today, I yes. think. Yes, a year ago today. Um, so, you know, good timing, definitely, on that. I was not familiar with his story. So hearing you talk about him um, is, you know, impacting yeah. me. I Yeah, I, uh, I'm a big geek when it comes to 60s and 70s sports trivia, uh, being born in the late 60s and then growing up in that era. I mean, I never saw him play except just to watch old highlights and stuff, but he was... Dr. J before, well, okay, he was Connie Hawkins before Connie Hawkins. He was Dr. J before. He was Jordan before. He was whoever. I mean, he was the original guy. That's titled Above the Rim because he was the first guy in the NBA who really went to the high-flying style of, you know, jumpers and going to the slashing to the basket. It went from a, the NBA went from a plotting, throw the ball down, dump it in the post, turn around, bang around to, hey, this guy's going to get it up and down the court. Yes, yes. Changed the entire pacing of basketball. And, you know, when they, I love these historical children's biographies because they really give insight into what those what those players went through, what any of the, the people in that time period went through. Um, he grew up in Washington, D.C., 
went to College of Idaho to play basketball because none of the schools on the East Coast nope. were were open for him to play. Um, and at the beginning, you know, it talks about him and his friends not even having a court to play on. They played street ball. They used whatever balls were available to them. So, you know, tennis balls that they picked up or used volleyballs that were that were thrown away and they didn't even have a, a true basketball to play with. But still, the artistry that he exhibited as a young man on the uh, in the street playing, people would stop and watch because they were so fascinated by the way that he played. And that carried over into his college games. And then he was drafted in 1958 by the Minneapolis Lakers, who later became the LA Lakers. He was rookie of the year that year with the Minneapolis Lakers. Um, and, you know, of course, everything that was happening during that time period as he sure. was playing, as he was part of the NBA, um, Many of the hotels would not let him stay there. Many of the restaurants would not let him eat there when they were traveling across the country trying to, you know, drum up interest in the NBA, but also, you know, playing those games. And so finally he kind of had it one day and decided that he was not going to play a game in front of all of the white crowds that would not let him stay in their hotels or eat in their restaurants. And that was kind of that tipping point then for the NBA standing behind him, changing their regulations. If, if the town that they were going to was not going to allow him to stay and eat, then they would not play there. There were, I mean, all throughout the sixties, there were instances of this in, in, in many sports. The American Football League uh, didn't play an all-star game in New Orleans and moved it because of that. Um, when uh, and, and it, it happened into the late 60s after uh, you know, Dr. King was assassinated. Uh, you know, Bill Russell and uh, Wilt Chamberlain were the Celtics and Lakers were supposed to have a game. And of course, mm -hmm. back then, Celtics, well, still, Celtics and Lakers yes. are always an important game, even a regular season game. And uh, they said, you know, we don't want to play. And uh, we want to, and they said, look, we, the owners went to them and said, look, you need to do this because it'll show unity, it'll show support and whatever. And they eventually ended up playing the game that night. But, uh, you know, I, I just recently listened to an interview with Bill Russell about it. And he, he really regrets that. He goes, mm -hmm. I wish we would have sat, especially in light of what you saw happen years ago and recently with uh, the stuff in Milwaukee when the Bucks, you know, they, they, Gonna boycott it. They boycotted a playoff game. Mm -hmm. So you know the 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 NBA, and again the NBA went. He was he was one of the pioneers when they when they broke the color barrier, and uh, I believe the 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 Celtics had the first black player in the late fifties, right mm -hmm. before like fifty eight, I think. Yeah. So, and so right then, before. So then Baylor came in, and. Uh, and still, they there up until the early seventies. There was a I mean, a team could have no more than X number of black players mm -hmm. because they didn't want the league to become too black because they didn't they wanted it to appeal to white fans. Mm -hmm. And all the way into the seventies, the league had that perception. And then you know the the drug issue came up, and then. These two guys played this college basketball game in 1979 named Magic Johnson and Larry Bird, and then the NBA took off and has been really popular. You know, then Johnson, then... Fantastic then, and it was, amazing. It was Magic and Bird, then Jordan, then, you know, then they just carry the, the list just continued to go up until, you know, the where it is today, where, it's, you know, again, the sport's very popular. So, but again, and the NBA has taken such great measures. I mean, they've created insurance funds for return, retired players and things. So, mm -hmm. Baylor was one of those true pioneers of that game. And to just talk about that entire history and the social 
ramifications of it all. Um, it's it is it is a microcosm of American history to go back and study uh, professional sports, uh, especially the NBA. It truly in, is. In the 60s. It truly is the the ways in which they were able to overcome those barriers. Um, as with so many of the books that I've brought recently, there's a wonderful explanation in the back for parents or educators who are using this. Some great bibliographical information, other books to look at. You know, direct quotes. You know where these resources came from so that you could go back and redo it and a wonderful timeline kind of covering all of those pieces that you just talked about too um, really when did it take off to become so much more open and accepting of that and just again truly one of those pioneers who who stands up and says this is how it should be yeah, done and, that, and a book like that's totally in my sports geek wheelhouse so yes, yes. it really looks great so. so much fun and and again just a great story wonderful illustrations i love the way that it the, the story and the words combine to create a true atmosphere of learning and respect for this incredible athlete and the last uh, book we're going to talk about uh, before we go on to some programming issues, uh, The Nature of Fragile Things. Yes. And uh, you, you you got kind of, you know, we did a hurricane, now we're doing an earthquake. <laughs> you got kind of a disaster thing going on here. You know, th- these historical novelists, they don't like... <laughs> calm. <laughs> it has to be something disastrous in order for them to, to write about it. But yes, the Galveston hurricane, the, this one is about the San Francisco earthquake in 1906. Um, but I, I do appreciate these historical novels that take place in, you know, those emerging cities, you know, San Francisco in 1906 was still, you know, it was incredibly advanced for where it was, but it was still partially, you know, frontier at some point too. You know, I mean, there were definitely still yeah, some things happening years there. after the gold rush. I mean, it's yeah. Yeah. You're, you're not, um, established civility yet. And so this book covers, um, actually about a year, year and a half of time. Um, the main character is Sophie. She is an Irish immigrant who has been living in New York City, um, came over to be with her brother. He moved to Canada. The rest of her family is still in Ireland. She's so lonely and depressed and and restricted and no friends and no family, no support system. So she answers a letter from a gentleman in California in San Francisco who is looking for someone to come and marry him and t- be a mother to his daughter. And so she answers the ad and she goes on the train across to California. They get married within minutes of meeting each other. He takes her to this new home that he's bought and introduces her to his daughter. You know, and this is, you know, 1905. So she has, you know, she's trying to get the daughter to speak. He gives her, Martin, her husband, gives her this um, incredibly sad story about how his parents have died and the, the his wife, his previous wife, Candace, had died and all of these disasters that had happened and, and tells her that he is an insurance salesman, does risk assessment, and so he has to be gone most of the time and, you know, all of these things. Well, things stop adding up after a while. You know, he he talks to her about a cousin of his that does this, you know, this, that, or the other, and and but they, they can't meet each other. They can't meet each other. And, you know, and so he's gone most of the time. She's making inroads into helping Kat speak again after the death of her mother. You know, very trusting woman to go into this situation. Meets the neighbors and, you know, and is trying to explain to them what her husband does. But they have questions, you know, what company does he work for? Why is he gone all the time? Um, and so the, the cracks start to show. And then right before the earthquake in April of 1906, um, the cousin, Belinda, shows up at the door, very obviously pregnant. She is looking for her husband, James, and sees the picture that 
Sophie and Martin had taken on their wedding day and says, that's my husband, James. And, you know, so they get together and they start talking about all of these things that are happening while Martin comes home and and he is the same person. Um, He has married both of them. And actually his first wife, Candace, is in a sanatorium and she is still alive. He is kind of one of those serial people who, um, you know, in the book, he marries rich women for things that he wants. He wants their land. He wants their gold mine. He wants this or that or the other. Um, And of course, in the midst of all of this discussion of, you know, discovering what he has done, there's the earthquake and he falls down the stairs and the women escape and he does not. Um, And so then interspersed throughout the story, um, you have these transcripts of legal interviews saying what happened why did you do this why were you doing this so it really is you know in some ways a little bit of mysterious some suspense there you know kind of what's going to happen but how it all turns out in the end is that you know that culmination of the story but these three women and their interrelated lives the the links to martin and his nefarious deeds the things that he has been doing um it really makes for a great intriguing read and i'm excited to be able to talk about this with one of our book clubs coming up in april some Jerry Springer stuff. There. A little bit, yes. And, <laughs> and you know, you don't think about things like that happening prior to Jerry Springer, but sure. it really did. There were many, many people who oh, yeah. unfortunately had some, kind of that double life because they could make up those excuses and legal records were not what they are today. <laughs> yeah, not like you're going to be able to like uh, go and do any Google search or any, you know, social media search on people back yes. then. So. Yes, exactly. Wow. So uh, lots to unpack with this book. You know, talking about the relationship between Sophie and Kat, between Kat and her father, Martin, and then among the women themselves once they all figure out what has been going on and and how they were able to move on after that. Let's talk about some things you have going on at the library this week. Yes, we have story times and you know, events and activities and domino challenges and you know, it's it's just so much fun. Everything that happens at the library, we truly try to design not only for the educational purpose, you know, if it's the STEM domino challenge that we're doing Thursday night at six o'clock or, you know, play date at the library, which is, you know, more for the fun aspect of it, but there's always that learning element. So even if, you know, when they come in for story times, we're doing rhythmic things, you know, dancing and singing and finger plays and clapping, we're doing movement exercises and, Most people don't think about that as a learning skill, but it truly is. Because when you go to marching band camp, you need to know how to march in rhythm. You need to know how to clap. Um, When you're doing drills or training, that counting off or, you know, um, just lots of fun things that kids can learn how to do that really is an early literacy skill, even if it's not something where they're just sitting down and reading a book. So, you know, all of those things tie together for that educational and entertainment factor in what the library plans. So, yes, story time today at 10 a.m., baby time on Thursday at 10 a.m. and that friends and family STEM domino challenge at 6 p.m. on Thursday. Play date at the library, which is just open time for people to come in and play with some of the things that we have. That's at 10 a.m. Friday. Saturday is our Super Saturday story time at 10 a.m. And then Monday is another play date at 6 p.m. So we'll get out all of our manipulables and the blocks and the stepping stones and, you know, whatever it happens to be and let the kids and the adults interact with each other and together to really have that fun time. And you've also got the uh, Friends of the Library book sale coming up, too. Yes, we do. Friends of the Library book sale starts on the 31st, and that will 
run from 9.30 in the morning until 7.30 in the evening. And then on Friday and Saturday, April 1st and 2nd, it will be from 9.30 until 4.30. 50 cents an inch, which is always a great price. And then, you know, there will be some collections or audiovisual materials or whatever it happens to be. Those might have some specialty pricing on them. But for the for the most part, you stack those books up and they slap a ruler against it. <laughs> you get 50 cents an inch and you go home with a whole pile of new stuff for for yourself to read. That sounds great. Uh, that's that's a that's a really neat way to to sell it. I think you know, just stack it up there and put the rulers up there. Yes. So well, and you know, the three books that I have here today, that's probably about two and a half inches. Mm-hmm. So you're going to get that for a buck twenty five, and you know, you've got something for your kids, something historical, something fun to read. Um, you know, it's definitely worth it. We have people that come in with their own bags and boxes. And the Friends of the Library, of course, is that all-volunteer organization. Yeah. They run the Secondhand Pros Bookstore. And they just do a phenomenal job supporting the library and our programming to provide it to the community. Well, Katie, great information as always. Thanks for stopping by. Thank you so much.